Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number eight. Today, we're going to be talking about tree stands, tree stand strategy, tree stand placement, tree stand setup, our favorite models of tree stands, and much, much more. So stick around, grab a cold beverage, and enjoy. Right. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and thanks for joining us here on the Wired to Hunt podcast. Along with me today is the nine-fingered wonder from Iowa, my trusty co-host, Dan Johnson. How's life treating you these days, bud? <laughs> well, a lot better after that introduction. I, I didn't, I'm looking at the notes right now, and I did not see that, and I'm just like, oh, well, he's pretty good at ad-lib, and then I see it's in the notes. and Well, don't go tell all my secrets. <laughs> <laughs> nine-fingered wonder. Yes, Sounds sir. like I'm some superhero sidekick. Well, I like to think that you are. Okay. So well, thanks. at least a superhero. Maybe not the sidekick. You're you're a superhero <laughs> all on your own, Dan. <laughs> but yeah, I uh I'm doing pretty go over good over here too. It's kind of cruddy outside. It's raining and, and such around here, but it's warm, so I can't complain too much. But what's uh what's the world look like outside your door? Well, we got rain the past three days. Uh, so I'm going to have to mow my yard again for the third time in about, oh, it feels like 10 days. So I got to do that. I've been, I've been doing some yard work. Um, I'm getting my trail cameras ready, kind of go, going through one a night, testing it, making sure they work, being a dad and a husband and full-time job and all that other BS that no one really cares about. Sounds like you got a lot on your plate. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like uh, I like the mention of trail cameras, though. I'm getting pretty pumped up about that, too. Uh, I actually set up a camera this past weekend down in Ohio. So I'm excited to head back down there in probably a month, month and a half, and see what's starting to pop up there. Um, and I think in probably a couple weeks, we should do a full episode all about trail cameras because that's something I know that, um, that we're excited about, and I'm sure our listeners are, too. Um, the one other exciting thing for me was that this past weekend while I was there in Ohio, not to jump too far down the turkey road, but I did have a pretty darn good weekend of turkey hunting again. Um, I had my first double. Me and Josh, me and my buddy Josh, shot two big old gobblers on the count of three at the same time. <laughs> so, yeah, that was pretty sweet. I, it did, was, I did that last year with my wife. We had a – she shot. The Tom stuck around, and I shot the one that stuck around. That's awesome. Yeah. I've always seen it on TV, you know, like we were talking about during that one turkey episode. Um, but I've, it's never actually happened for me, but it worked out really well. And it was it was really cool because Josh has never killed a turkey before. So this was his first turkey and my second of the year, and just it, it worked out really well. It was cool. They were gobbling off the roost, and they came down and went the other way, so we were kind of feeling a little bummed about it, but... I ended up getting a couple hens talking near me, uh, maybe an hour after, well, it was actually two hours after, after daylight. And I just started getting aggressive with the hens. I thought, my thought was that they must be henned up. The gobblers must be with the hens, but they just weren't talking. So I just started, you know, getting kind of nasty with the hens and it brought two hens in and right behind them, two big old gobblers. So that was pretty sweet. Yeah. 
cool. Yeah. But but we did a bunch of work down there outside of that. And um, you know, that a big part of that prep that we were doing down there, other than the turkey hunting, was related to tree stand related projects. And that's what I really wanted to talk about today. You know, while we were down there, we scouted out new stand locations, we adjusted a setup, we put up a new tree stand, and then we actually decided on four more locations where we're gonna be hanging stands over the coming months. So, you know, with all that fresh on my mind, I thought we could spend our time, you know, today discussing tree stand setups and, and everything that goes into that strategy. And it's something we could probably talk about for four hours, but we'll try to keep this to a little less than that. Um, but that said, on a scale of one to ten, Dan, how much do you like setting up tree stands? Well, it's that's a very that's a variable for me because when it's ninety degrees out and you've procrastinated so long, it's August and it's humid and it's a hundred degrees out. I I hate setting tree stands. It's a one, yeah. but if it's a, a cool day and I don't have a lot of trimming to do, or you know I'm setting one up on a field uh, field edge, I would say maybe a, uh, an eight, just because it's uh, I mean they're ne- it's never it, fun. But it's the excitement, I, I guess. There's a little bit of an excitement saying, God, I cannot wait to hunt this stand. Yeah, that's true. I can definitely relate to that. I, I fall into the same camp as you, though, where more times than I'd like to admit, I end up procrastinating and putting it off too far. And just like you said, it's usually a super hot day. I'm sweaty. I got mosquitoes everywhere. I'm covered in poison ivy probably since that happens to me every other weekend, it seems like. And it's kind of miserable. But as much as it can be a pain at times, it's like you said, it's really important and it's, it's exciting because you never know what could happen at that location, you know, down the road. So I thought, you know, as we kick things here off, that we kind of talk about one of the most important aspects of tree stand placement. And that is, you know, how we're looking at tree stand placement and our strategies around them at different times of the year. So I'm curious, Dan, you know, I certainly have a lot I could say on this topic and I've got a lot of different thoughts about how I think about tree stands and timing, but I'm curious for you, you know, do you time your hunts and tree stand setups for certain times of the year or are you just hanging stands on good sign and hunting them at any time, you know, without maybe a premeditated plan? Man, I wish I, I wish I had a a strategy I could tell you, but typically every, every season I start off with this game plan. Like, Hey, I have these four or five stands trimmed out, whatever. Uh, and then from that point, I start working my trail cameras and I'm looking for where the activity is. Okay. So let's say I got a buck coming to, um, a shooter buck coming to a field edge or coming by a trail camera, but it's after dark or it's right at dark. I'm going to hunt inside of that to where he might be coming through at, uh, I don't know, at, a at, a in daylight hours. Okay. But if he's if he's coming later in the season, let's say towards the 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 rut, the pre rut, the late November, early or the early November, late October, where these bucks start showing up in daylight hours, I'm hunting closer to to the field edges, and then as time goes on, I'll work my way in depending on what my trail cameras show. All right? Are you putting those cameras pretty close to your stand setups then? Some of them are. Uh, a lot of them are in pinch points, uh, and I'll move a lot of them depending on where the sign is. Uh, so let's say I find a, a scrape that's uh, getting worked, and uh, so I'll put it over there. And one thing I've noticed over the years that these bucks are making big circles or they're running some kind of circuit every day. 
and based on the wind direction is the way they approach this circuit and they want to make sure they're hitting the sign where the does are at and hitting those bedding areas when they're when they're going starting to search out for does and based on what my trail camera is showing uh, is where I is where I set up I have and here's an, here's an example I have a I have a property where there's a crick system that runs through it and along this crick systems are the bedding areas and then there's some two tracks and some let's say some old farm roads that these deer travel it's like a big circle around these field edges it's and there's sign throughout the entire year there even right now there's going to be an active an active uh, scrape somewhere in there and uh I'll just sit there and as they make their, I read my trail cameras and as they make their, their, uh, their little loop for the day, I hope I run into one. That's, that's early season, of course, when they start their search, searching for does. Right, right. Okay. Well, that's interesting how you're using those trail cameras to really determine how you're moving your stands. And, you know, something that I want to dive in a little bit later about was the fact that you do, at least I think you do a lot of run and gun hunting where you're setting up a portable tree stand, hunting at once, then moving somewhere else. So we'll dive into that a little bit later um, because I think that's something really interesting and something I've done to a degree, but probably you more so than me. Um, But I'll take a stab at the question I just asked you too. And, you know, for anyone that knows me, they might laugh at this because they know that I am super detail and like plan oriented. So I've got a pretty strict kind of plan in place about how I time my hunts in certain tree stands. And then I also am setting up stands specifically for certain times of the year, even certain properties for certain times of the year. Um, So what I'll take a look at is there'll be certain core areas of a property that I'm hunting or properties by themselves where I know I've got an incredible chance at encountering a mature buck in those areas during that late October to November time period of the pre-rut and rut. And so what I try to do is I try to minimize any pressure I put on those areas at all until that time frame. So I will completely section off these areas of the property and I will not hunt them at all until later in the year. So what that means is that I need to have special setups just for the early season where I think I can still have a chance at success while not messing anything up for those core areas that I plan on hunting in November. Um, So in the early season, what I'm doing is I'm trying to set my stands for evening hunts. Another thing I do in the early part of the year, October into, I guess early October into maybe the 24th, up to the 24th or 25th of October, somewhere around there, I won't hunt any mornings. Again, because I think the odds for success in the morning are relatively low, um, but the risk of bumping deer going into a stand is pretty high. So I'd rather avoid that risk and just focus on evening hunts. So I'm looking to just set up near food sources during those first couple weeks in October. Um, So I have a number of stands set up for those first three weeks, either right on a food source or just back from one in a staging area. Um, And of course, it it comes down to each year, I need to try to figure out what those prime food sources are going to be at that time of year. So whether that's acorns or a food plot or, you know, an agricultural crop that's going to be popular at that time with a local deer, I'm trying to figure all that out right now so that I can have stands moved around to be in that right spot to, to intercept a deer that's moving from a bedding area to that food source. Um, but then there's, there's so much more that goes into it that we could dive into. You know, when I'm setting these stands, I'm not only trying to be, 
you know, near a food source that's going to be, you know, actively used. But then I also need to be somewhere where I can get into it without bumping deer out of those bedding areas that are nearby. And then I also need to be able to get out of that tree stand without bumping the deer that are feeding, you know, in the evening. So there's a whole lot that goes into it. Um, but, you know, in the early season, that's sort of my framework and the way I look at things. And then as I move into later, you know, October or early November, then I've got a handful of stand locations already set up. You know, hopefully they'll be set up or, or are already set up now um, or later this summer so that I can come into those spots, you know, the last couple of days of October or early November, hunt them for the first time. And those are the spots where I'm really expecting to see something good happening during that rut time frame. So, you know, a lot of my a strategy, you know, for putting stands up in my, in my stand placement revolves around this timing and, you know, what I deem as early season safe hunts. And then, you know, when I go, you know, all gangbusters during the rut. And then I have, you know, lots of times the early season stands are the same ones that I return to in the late season, you know, when deer are focused on food sources again. So, you know, from a, from a seasonal strategy at a high level, that's kind of what, um, that's what kind of what I do and, and the, the high level way of, that I think through it. Let me, uh, let me tell you a little of something I've learned in the past two years. Cause you said that, um, morning hunts typically have a lower success rate for you. Um, so I have, you know, like we, like we say, we always try to observe and, and make, um, our next move based on what we observe or, um, educate us as hunters. Now, I have seen really good movement in mornings early season. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, cause typically what happens is uh, a, a person will hunt a field edge or a food source and wait till dark. And then right at that magic hour, the deer start to trickle out because it, you know, I don't know about you, but I don't have, you know, we don't have that Lee Lakoski property where the deer are conditioned to, to yeah. us and we, and have all that, you know, they're, they're feeding out in the middle of the day. We just don't have that. So for us, deer are coming out right at last light to these food sources. And then you hope you get a crack at it, at them then. So what I've done is I have bumped away from the food source and have hunted like a staging area or a transition area before they yep. come to those food sources. I will hunt it that night. I'll leave all my stuff in the, in the tree and I'll come back the next morning and any deer that makes it by me and comes back to the bedding area, I'm going to, I'm cutting them off. So let's say they, they get a late start heading back to bed. I'm going to have a, a decent chance of seeing them coming back to bed because I'm not on the food source or blowing that food source out in the mornings. Yeah, no, I can totally understand. I can understand that logic. Um, I guess for me, on my side of things, what I've just always found or believe from what I've heard and seen is that so often in those first couple weeks of October, those bucks are coming back to bed before daylight. So it's like when I'm heading into my tree stand at, you know, five in the morning, that's when those deer are already heading back from their food sources. So I think, you know, if you can catch, if those deer are heading back late, like you said, that's perfect. Um, I'm just so dang risk averse at that time of year that I hate the idea of possibly bumping a deer, you know, when I'm heading, even if I'm not coming near a food source, this is when I'm, you know, coming in from the back door. Um, but if they're heading into the bedding area and I'm moving through the timber to, to get in the back side of a food source near that bedding area, if I'm, you know, if they're not coming back late, we're going to be intercepting each other. So it's a, it's a risk reward thing. I've, you know, this last year was the first year I decided to try 
um, you know, sacrificing those morning hunts because I wanted to see if I could, you know, get a bigger return in the evenings by, you know, kind of the less is more strategy. And it, it, it worked to a degree for me, but you know, not to say that it can't work other ways. So we'll see what I learn, you know, as we go. Yep. And it's a thing. And the thing about it is I'm not doing it on some of my good spots. I'm not taking that early season tactic that I just mentioned to some of those better, um, stand stands. I'm doing this on places that I can access real easy park on a field edge, walk down a draw, get to my spot. And it's real simple access. I'm not tromping through the woods early season, you know, in close to a bedding area. It's just something I've, something I've observed for, and it's, it's not for all my properties. It's for two, two stand placements in particular, actually. So, um, it's just some, if, and it's typically when I'm trying to kill a doe. Interesting. Speaking of, you know, how you, you mentioned there's two specific spots that work well for that type of strategy. I'd be curious to hear taking, you know, moving forward a couple weeks into the season, you know, when it comes to that pre-rut or rut time frame, um, you know, assuming you don't have any trail camera evidence that tells you what to do, where are you setting up, you know, the first week of, no- of November? Is there a certain type of generic area that you're looking for or do you just kind of see what the sign tells you? Yeah, I have. Okay, so remember when we talked to Dan Infault? all those weeks ago, mm-hmm. I have, I have observation stands. So I'll pop into an observation stand and, uh, watch and then make my moves in, make my move in. So, you know, just, just imagine a giant circle and in the center of that circle is a known bedding area or, um, a hot zone, so to speak. So I'll move my way in closer and closer as we get closer to the rut. Um, or, I'll make my move in when I see that there is sign, like a heavy, heavy sign, or my trail cameras are talking to me. Now, when you say heavy sign, what what does heavy sign constitute for you? Heavy sign would be um, scrapes, uh, open scrapes that tip that. Uh, let's say if I'm checking a, and typically I have trail cameras over them, so uh, it's kind of a combination of these scrapes that are getting hit on a daily basis by mature by the my, by my target bucks because typically going into the season i already have my hit list put together of bucks that i'm going to shoot or i'm going to pass if i run into them so uh as, if some of those shooters start showing up on this sign close to daylight hours i'm uh i'm going to be hunting that area yeah definitely i think something you mentioned brings up uh a point that's worth touching on, I think as well. And that's scrape hunting in general, you know, I think there's been a lot of things said about hunting scrapes, you know, back in the nineties, you know, from what I heard and whatever read when I was a little kid, scrape hunting was really popular. And then, you know, recently people have talked a lot about the fact that research is showing that most scrape visits are happening in the dark. Um, but it still seems that there can be a sweet spot when being on those scrapes can, you know, still pay off. And like you said, if you have a camera on it, you can figure out those time frames and be there to, to, you know, make your move. I had a situation this past fall where I really think I missed an opportunity. Um, and it was around this time frame of between October 20th and October 30th. And from things I've heard from other people and from what I've personally seen, that just seems to be like a sweet spot for when mature bucks seem to be starting to visit these scrapes heavily. And from a lot of different things I've heard, other people have been seeing similar things to what I have. And what I had is a, a trail camera was head up, set up on a scrape and it was starting to get hit really hard on like October 23rd. Um, I had a couple trail cameras in the surrounding area and I started picking up a good amount of movement. 
and I began to hunt a couple spots deeper in my property right around that time frame, and I passed this scrape on the way to get to one of these different locations. Well, the first time I passed that scrape, it was probably, I don't know, 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and I bumped a single deer off that scrape, and I could just see it bounding away, and it sounded and just looked like a big, heavy deer. So I was kind of like, ah, crud, I've, I've spooked something, but I kept going and went and hunted, um, you know, wherever I was going that day. Three days later, I think it was, I had to go. I wanted to head back to the same general area, and I thought the conditions were right to make the plunge, so I did again. And in the back of my head, I'm thinking, man, i got to be careful to avoid that scrape area um, just because it's getting hit hard. Who knows? This is on the edge of a standing cornfield. So I think the deer were pretty comfortable moving in that area even during daylight. Well, I went about five or six rows deep into the corn and was walking down that edge. I should have really avoided it, but I was lazy, I guess. And I'm walking along the edge. I get to the same spot and crash, crash, crash. A single deer goes bounding off. Well... I go and check that trail camera, and I had one of my top hit list bucks, um, a buck I call Six Shooter, which I ended up killing. I ended up killing, as you know, in, De- in December, I ended up getting him. But he was visiting that trail camera or visiting that scrape in the middle of the daylight in a three-day time frame. He visited that darn tra- or that darn scrape four different times in the daylight. And you know, if I had checked that trail camera earlier, or if I had you know trusted my instincts you know when that happened I was like man I think that's one of the big boys for some reason I just had a hunch if I would have moved in there right away and hunted it the next couple days you know I might have gotten a shot he came in there at five o'clock one day the next day he was in there at noon um and I think what he was doing he, he must have been bedding pretty close to there there's a little finger of timber that stuck out right there into the standing corn and I think he was bedding off that point and and visiting this scrape every once in a while just to see what was moving through and that was a kind of a hunch I had and I didn't act on it but in retrospect, I should have, but I don't know. Have you seen anything similar to that during that time frame for scrape hunting? Before, yeah. before, uh, before, um, we go to that question. I'm going to ask you a question. How, how often do you hunt with your gut? Like, do you typically, do you typically say, okay, well, I have a tree stand set up here. I put a lot of work into it, into the, um, this spring and summer, and this is where I've had historically good luck. How apt you are to go with your gut and go, just, mm, man, I really need to, I really need to be here right now. Yeah, I should go with my gut more often maybe, um, but I'm such a planner and like a, a strategery guy that I plan this stuff out ahead of time and I almost feel like you have a plan, you know what you're doing, stick to the plan and eventually good things will happen. Sometimes I adjust, and I'm, I'm getting more and more in tune with that instinct. And I think that's something that comes with time and experience. Um, you know, like two years ago was a perfect example of when I, I just had this gut instinct, and I, and I went with it, and it paid off, and I killed a buck when I was there in Iowa a couple of years back. Um, it just, just had a thing where I felt like I had to go for it. Or this past year, um, November 11th, and November 13th, I saw another one of my hit list bucks that I was calling Leaner, really big, nice 140-class Michigan buck. I saw him come in and out of this bedding area in a swamp one morning and then the following evening. And I just knew that this was a major doe bedding area, and I'd also seen Six Shooter there earlier in November. But I didn't have any stands set up there. Um, I had all these other stands I'd set up, and I was hunting them. And it was, you know, it's easy to go to the stand that you have set up, and it's easy to get out of there. And so I was kind of 
reluctant to go and try to hang a stand. But it was November 13th, I think, you know, on the 15th, our gun season opens here and kind of all hell breaks loose. So November 14th is kind of that last best chance. And, you know, that night before I was like, shoot, you know, I've, I've seen him come in and out of there a couple times. I know there's doe bedding area there. It's somewhere I haven't hunted at all. I, I have to go for it. And so I kind of went with my gut there, and I actually woke up. I got out there and hung a tree stand at 3 in the morning, went in there and climbed up on an edge and got all set up. And I, I, hunt, I was you know set up there from 3.30 in the morning till the next night. And uh, the gut instinct didn't end up paying off. I didn't end up seeing him. But it was one of those moves where it just felt so right. I was like, I, I'm going to be aggressive. This is what my instincts are telling me. This is good. And I went for it, and I'm glad I did. Even though it didn't pay off, I think, you know, there's times when you need to go for it. And I think it comes down to just developing and fine-tuning that, that gut instinct. And I'm sure, from what, I, from what I think, I think you're probably better at that than me. Well, I, th- I don't know. It's kind of, that, would, that would make us start judging each other as hunters. And I don't think it has anything to do with that. I think it's just, man, I, I, can, I walk into the timber and I'll walk to where I think the the stand is now here's my problem i have a problem of overthinking scenarios okay mm-hmm. so i'll go with my gut but then once i make that decision of where i need to end up i'll sit there and i'll look at trees and i'll just go hmm, maybe that one or maybe that one or maybe that one so i'll i'll pull the trigger go with my gut but not pull the second trigger if that makes any sense to mm-hmm. to go with the right tree i mean i've been set up completely set up and i mean camera arm camera up got up there settled down and saw a different angle from when from where my tree stand was up tore all back down moved 20 yards and 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 set up again and you know setting up on a running gun then that's not that's not easy especially when you got camera equipment heck no that's a a royal (laughs) a royal pain in the butt right i know that um well Let's let's dive into something you just mentioned. You're looking for the right tree. So what do you look for in a good tree when you're trying to set up a stand? Just the straightest one. Really? <laughs> no, I'm just, no. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, man. You should see some of the trees I have sat in before. Com- completely ridiculous. Like I, <laughs> I don't care how big it is. I don't care what the angle is. I will find a way to get my lone wolf in that tree stand or in that tree and 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 make it work even if i have to stand up the entire night or if i you know have you know that's what safety harnesses are for for it's true for stupid people i guess but (laughs) (laughs) but uh but i will go to the to the location that that i think is the best and i will pick out the best possible tree if that if that tree's not straight I'll make, I'll, I, you got to make it work. I mean, I've, I've had it to where I have wedged my, the platform of my tree stand down in some kind of Y or, and strapped, strapped it in with a, a ratchet strap and just made it as solid as possible and, uh, and, 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 and made it work. Now, when you say the best possible tree, do you mean the best possible tree for getting a shot? So based on, okay, this is where I think the sign is, therefore that tree right there is in the best position to get a shot opportunity. Is that what you mean? Or are you saying best tree based on other factors? No, that's the, it's, the, it's for the kill, man. It's the best possible shot, period. Okay. Um, and with that said, there's always an exception to the rule. Now, I'll set up in the best possible tree, 
All right, so I typically bring some kind of pole saw or, or some trim, trimming equipment into the timber with me and to cut a couple shooting lanes, you know. If this is a pure run and gun and I've done no prep work for that tree, I, you know, I'm going to cut a couple shooting lanes, something real small, real narrow, so that where I come in, where I think these deer are going to come, I'll have a shot opportunity. It's not going to be 40, I'm not trimming 40-yard lanes all the way out. But I'll, I'll sit and I'll, I'll say, okay, I, I, he could come from here, he could come from here, he could come from here, and I'll, I'll trim those, those what I think are the highest percentage areas, shooting lanes. And, uh, and then at that point, when you're all set up and those lanes are shoot, it's just kind of a hope and pray type scenario. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Uh, and I think, you know, there's one other thing that I, when I'm going through that process, a lot of it is like you just said, I'm looking for that best possible location for the shot. But then the other thing I think about and that I've encountered and I've experienced this is, is sometimes when I try to set up in that perfect tree for the shot, if I don't think about my cover in the tree and how the tree is going to you know, help conceal me, I almost hurt myself more than I help myself because I've had times where I thought this is the tree I have to be in to get a shot. But that tree was a telephone pole with no cover at all. And when a deer did come through for a shot, I stuck out like a sore thumb. So I constantly am struggling with this balancing act of, you know, finding a tree that's in the right spot that gives me a shot, but also has enough cover in it to, you know, to conceal me and allow me to get away with what I need to do to get that shot. So I think that's a a juggling act that probably everyone has to deal with. But I think it's something that's worth thinking about. Um, And then there's other guys. I've got a buddy who is is obsessed with the type of tree when he wants to set a tree stand like this guy absolutely loves oak trees (laughs) he does whenever we're out there we're out shed hunting this year and when he sees a white oak tree he goes up and he'll hug it he's like that's a tree to put a tree stand in all sorts of branches and leaves he loves it he loves having that good cover and for good reason you know you can get away with a lot more and and you know if if you if you got a deer in front of you but you can't move what's the point so right it's tough I'm typically, and I see you got a note here again, uh, but I always have my stand. If I think the deer, I, I have the tr- the tree between myself and where I think the deer's coming. Yeah. So that can play a hindrance when trying to, uh, you know, because you got to work around that tree when when it's time to draw. But you can get away with a lot more if you have a giant tree. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of other things like crazy thoughts that I have about cover and, you know, certain types of camo and, you know, what colors to wear when you're, when you're in a more of an exposed spot like that. And then, you know, as far as tree stands are concerned, if I'm wide open, I'm going higher. If, if I'm, if there's a lot of cover, especially early season when you would, the potential for having to do a lot more uh, trimming on a running gun setup, I'm sitting a little bit lower right under that canopy and uh typically um if one came by i would be sitting down for the shot okay let's uh i want to jump on something you just said though, though without glossing over it you mentioned that and i think this is what i heard you say is that when you're setting up in those types of situations you will have your tree stand facing away from where you think the deer is coming from correct right it sucks but i mean i'll be i'll be standing up and facing the tree for the majority of the night yeah. No, I, I like that. I um, you know, I actually have not done that a whole lot. I have done it on occasion. Um, but I I haven't purposely done that, but I've read a couple of things. I know Bill Winky, I read um Bill Winky was talking about this tactic a while ago and I 
it makes all the sense in the world. And it sounds like you've been doing it and having success with it because, you know, you're able to get that cover. The tree trunk is the cover now between you and the deer. So even in a situation, if there's not a lot of branches, you can still get some concealment and then you just have to wrap yourself around to get that shot. But I think uh, I'm going to be doing that a lot in the future because that makes it's, it's a way to kind of get the best of both worlds in some cases, it sounds like. Now, both me and you film our hunts. So, right. okay, so if you're facing where you think the deer's coming from, all right, let's say you have an open field. You have, you have Your camera arm at that point is going to be on one side of you or the other. So Correct. you have to find out, you know, you grab the camera, go behind your back with it. If that deer comes from the other way, other way, you're turning your sideways at some point. Now imagine that it's turned around. You have all your equipment in front of you. Now you have no equipment behind you. So you're not having to turn around as much. You're not having to, uh, you know, grab the camera arm, grab the camera behind your back, go behind you. All you have to do is just make distance between yourself and the tree to bring that camera arm around you. You know, you have your bow right in front of you. So the only thing you really have to worry about is if a deer is coming through, and typically I stand the whole night, the whole time anyway, is noticing the deer before, like if you're sitting down facing away from where you think they're going to be traveling. All you got to do is stand up and turn around and you have all your equipment right in front of you. Yeah, you make uh, you make a very compelling argument, my friend. I think uh, I think I'll be doing that more often this year for sure. So, yeah. It helps out a lot. Yeah, I can see I can see how. So, now you mentioned that in the early season you'd like to be a little bit lower before the canopy, um you know, below the canopy. Let's talk about what your tree stand height looks like during the later part of the year when the tree or when the leaves are down. Uh, you know, for me, I'm typically trying to be, um, you know, 18 to 22 feet or maybe 20 to 25 feet if I can get away with it. I like to be high. I think you, you do too, probably. Um, what's that? What's that look like for you usually? I mean, I'm, man, it, I tell you, it's, it's hard to, it just depends on the thickness of the area. Cause I, yeah. I hunt on a, a lot of really nasty, thick, thick stuff. And the lower, the lower you are, the more in these thicker areas, the lower lower you are. Now you're going to be right underneath that canopy, so to speak, and right above those I don't know those bushes that stay green all year round. You know what I'm talking about? They, they oh, have yeah. those green leaves all year round. So there's like that window right in between there. That's where I'm sitting. Um, now as as those leaves start to fall and I can get away with getting higher, I'm moving higher. I mean, if I if I could hunt 30 feet, I mean, I like to move. All right, I. People make fun of me because I glass so much. I'm using my binoculars <laughs> all the time. That it's, That's actually my downfall. I've actually been looking through my binoculars and then a deer is right underneath me because I'm – so I like to try to get uh, – I like to try to get high so I, I can get away with a little bit more movement. Um, I have terrible knees, so I have, to, I have to shake my legs out every once in a while if that makes sense. <laughs> so – so yeah, I mean, low when it's thick, high as that season, you know, get a little higher as that season goes on, but every setup's the same. Running guns are lower just because uh, it, you don't have to trim as much. But if I'm going to a hunt that I've trimmed in the summer, I mean, I'm, that, that tree stands uh, somewhere around the 25 foot mark, 20 foot. Yeah. Yeah. One, uh, one thing I'm thinking of here, you know, when it comes to stands that you're hanging, you know, in the summer if you're in a tree where you, if it's in a situation like we talked about earlier where 
there's a perfect tree. Like that tree is in the spot. It's a killing spot. But the tree doesn't offer good cover. And even if you're going to have the stand facing the opposite direction or if you don't want that, you know, another option that I've um, you know, found works pretty well is creating your own cover. And so what I'll do is I'll take branches or I've even had um, some people mention to me that they use fake Christmas tree branches. And I think that's pretty genius. I might be trying that in the future. And they zip tie them and we you know, attach them to the tree stand or the tree around you. So you have fake cover around you um, and you kind of manufacture that. So I've done that on a number of spots and it's worked It's worked really well. So that's something to think about for people that have a, a great spot and not a great tree. Uh, you can do some work beforehand to make it work still. Yeah, that's uh, that's one thing I've done and I can't remember the tree. It might be an oak. Cut a branch off an oak tree and yep. uh, zip tie it to uh, zip tie it, I don't know, right at your, right at your uh, torso level. And those those uh, those leaves will stay on all year. Or I'll take a pine, which if it's fresh and if it's a running gun, I'll zip tie it to the to the tree or my stand. It kind of offers a little bit of scent control as well. I, you know, as far as what my nose smells, you know, right. I got that that cedar smell. It's it's a cool smell, but uh, oh, yeah. but uh, it kind of breaks up your breaks up your uh, your outline a little bit as well. Yeah, no, for sure. I uh, I always keep a little package of zip ties in my backpack just in case yep. you know I have a situation like that. Um, okay, so I think I've got two major questions I want to make sure we still cover. So number one, let's talk about the type of tree stands we like to use. I'm curious what models of tree stands you know are using ladders versus hang-ons or climbers or all of the above, and then uh, I'd be curious to know what brand tree stands you like, Dan, and then I'll I'll share my thoughts too. Right. Um, well, as far as styles are concerned, man, I've the past, oh, six years, maybe I've only hunted with, um, hang ons and sticks. Um, unless there is a tree stand already in the tree, let's say I, I go to a, cause some of these farms already have these old rickety, uh, ladder stands in them. Right. Uh, and they're six. They're like sixty-five to a hundred dollars at Farm King. It's a store in Iowa, and so <laughs> so they're affordable. And that's what I used to used to hunt. Now that I have a little bit more money, and uh, I got some benefits from previously being, you know, with a with a hunting show, I the convenience level of a hang on with sticks. They're easy to pack in. They're lightweight, and you can adjust them to whatever tree you want. Uh, you know, I'm my the brands the brand that I have and use the most is Lone Wolf, and uh, I have one other muddy tree stand that's uh, chained to a chained to a giant oak somewhere. I, I mean, I don't even know where it's at. I it, it's it's in the woods somewhere, and I left it there. And I think it's probably by now it's probably grown into the tree. But my Lone Wolfs, man, I it they're hard to beat. I mean, you just they're so compact. I mean, you can set up a tree stand in five minutes and you can be hunting. It's not, I mean, it's, it's, it's easy. And that's what I like about them. Yeah. Those are really nice. So are you saying that you are doing almost all of your hunting from, you know, you're, you're hanging up sticks in a stand every time you go in pretty much. Well, in on the farms, like all this stuff is my, my stands now. Okay. So Years ago, or like two years ago, I used to leave my sticks and my stands in the timber 
you know, from the, when I trimmed them out. Now I'll take the bottom two sticks off. So I have two sticks in the stand already in the tree. So when I come there that night, and typically I hunt a, a night and then the morning, I'll, I'll put the two sticks up and then everything else is everything else is up and ready. Okay. Okay. So I have, I think right now I have about three, three stands, uh, and two of them will be set up in permanent spots that are perfect for when I take my vacation, uh, for the rut. And the other one is my running gun set that, uh, I'll use throughout the rest of the year. Yep. Okay. Well, you've definitely got a more economical approach than I do. So props to you for that (laughs) (laughs) because I, you know, this again goes back to just the way I, the way my mind works through things. I have to have like everything prepared ahead of time. Um, and so what that means is I, I own like 20 or 25 different tree stands <laughs> <laughs> and I have these set up all over the place, you know, all over the darn world. Um, because 95% of the time I like to be able to just walk right into a, to a spot and be able to climb right up in the tree, um, and hunt because I just, I hate, I, I'm always, I'm so paranoid about making a bunch of noise and taking too much time and screwing something up when I'm doing that. Not to say I don't do run and gun sometimes I do. And I, th- I think it works really well and I want to do more of it. Um, but what I end up doing is more times than not, I try to have as many spots as possible prepared. So I've got like seven or eight stands on one property and I've got a property down in Ohio where we have, you know, six stands up right now and we're looking at adding four or more this summer. So we'll have 10 different spots set up. Um, and what those tree stands are 90, like not even 99%, all of them are hang on stands. Um, and then we use either the kind of the climbing sticks, not the portable climbing sticks, but the ones that kind of bracket in together. And it's a big 20 foot section that, you know, gets oh, yeah. strapped to the tree. Yep. We use those or most of the time I just use the screw in the screwing steps and I don't even like them. I hate putting them into the tree. Um, it's a Royal pain, but I'm just so darn cheap. They're the cheapest things I can get. So, <laughs> so those I use a lot. And then when it comes to actual tree stands, I've got kind of a, a mess of all sorts of different kind of brands. I've got a handful of muddy tree stands, which are really nice. Like those hang ons a lot. I uh, got a great comfortable seat. Um, I've got one lone wolf, which I love as well. I use, that's my main, running gun set i've got that it's the lone wolf uh assault i think it is and then i've got the sticks that go with it love that um and then i have like 15 of the 40 dollar cheapo specials from walmart or tsc or whatever it might be um and those are the ones that are you know set up in most areas and i hate them they're not comfortable they're not quiet they're not great but when it comes right down to it it's better than nothing and it's what i can afford at the time so now I know guys up north that strictly hunt with climbers. And that's all they do, though, and they're typically yeah. running gun hunters too. Here's a story for you. I, oh, I mean, I wasn't. I, I don't know if I was out of high school yet or not. So it was somewhere around ninety-eight, ninety-nine, two thousand. And uh, you're really dating yourself right here, dude. Yeah, I know, <laughs> I know. But uh, so I got a, I got a climber for a gift. And so I put it on my back and well, I practiced with it on this chunk of this public piece before I went to my uh, hunting spot. So I get out there and as always, I'm doing some kind of run and gun deal. I find the tree that I want to get in and it's crooked. 
And I'm like, how the hell am I going to get up this thing with this <laughs> ladder? So I went to, I went over to, um, I went over to about 20 yards away, 30 yards away from where I wanted to be on the opposite side of that was where I wanted to hunt. Now I get my, I get my, my climber up and I'm set up. <laughs> I drop my release. So you got to go all the way back oh, down. Oh, jeez! Come all the way back up. But here's the, here's the kicker. So that night and I was probably, you know, like I said, I was somewhere around the 18, 19, 20, uh, 20 age and, uh, in, in walks probably a 165 class uh, 10 pointer and he had like a split brow. I can, I, I can remember it as if it was yesterday. And Oof. that was the day I vowed to never use a climbing tree stand again because I was in the, <laughs> I was not in the right spot. I, yeah. I, I brought in the climber, couldn't get into the tree that I wanted. And, uh, but you know, there's guys out there who they're pretty good at. It. I know a guy. Uh, who doesn't even use tree stands. He uses one of those saddle swings. Oh, yeah. You ever heard of those? Yeah, a couple of my friends use them too. He has, I don't know how he gets up in the tree. I think he's got like some kind of lineman's uh, thing where he kind of, you know, you've seen those TV shows where they see how fast they can climb a telephone pole. Yep. I think he, that's how he gets into his stands, buckles yeah. up, and just sits in like the crotch of a tree. Yep, yep. I uh, like it, yeah. I know a couple guys that do the exact same thing. They've got tree spikes on their on their boots right. that allow them to you know smash their feet into the tree and just kind of shimmy up it. It's pretty crazy. And I would love to try that sometime. Not yeah, I've lie. heard they work. I've heard they work really well, but they're they're out of business, so it's kind of hard to find those saddles, the tree saddles or tree slings or whatever they are. But I have heard good things about them. That's uh, I I have not used a climber before, but I did actually get one for Christmas this year. So we'll see. We'll see if I use it and to what degree I use it. Um, you know, like I mentioned, I want to be more mobile this year. I want to get out there. And, um, you know, this is another point we didn't really talk about a lot. And it applies more to me probably than you since you're already moving around a lot more. Um, but me, because I have these already set up tree stands all over the place, it can sometimes be tempting to just want to go back to one of them because right. it's convenient. Right. And it's, it's easy to fall into the trap of over hunting a, a stand location. And, you know, I think what I've found is that you can very quickly educate deer in the area, especially mature deer, if you're visiting the same stand, you know, over and over. Um, so, you know, this year I'm really trying to be really firm about not hunting any one stand more than just a handful of times. Um, and then, you know, moving on to new places because I think those, those virgin sits or the first couple sits are really dramatically better. I don't know what you've seen, but. Yeah, you know, it, it's, it's hard to tell um, because. You know, and this this almost comes back to that when people say there's a lull going on. I I hate it when people say, "Oh, it's the October lull." They're moving. Deer don't just disappear. Okay, they're there, and they're just not they're not they're not moving where your trail cameras are at or where you're hunting. They're moving somewhere because exactly. they got to drink and they got to eat and they got to they got a bed. And from point A to point B, that's where they're moving. You're just you're just not seeing them. Yep, so true. So, that got I got off topic there. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a, no, it's a good point, um, and one that we're definitely going to be talking about in a few months as we get closer to the fall. I'm sure we could have a couple episodes about October, the quote unquote October lull, and how to hunt it and everything. Um, 
one one last thing before we um before we close things out here anything else about your running gun hunting because i think this is something when it comes to tree stand strategies that a lot of people want to know more about you know any tips for guys out there that want to be more mobile with their stand setups you know what would you what would you share with them dan i mean you got to be you got to be willing to take a risk i mean you got to be a risk taker first of all and then that's what that's what running gun setups do now sometimes they can hurt me sometimes and to be honest with you on these running guns that is when I'm typically the most successful, um, bumping into a new area, uh, finding out where these d- deer are traveling and bouncing around from tree to tree to tree. The year I, sh- the, not this past year, but the year before when I shot my, when I shot my buck, I was in probably a 20, I'm going to say a 200 foot by 200 foot by 200 foot square. All right. So, uh, and I probably changed stand locations in that area, maybe a two acre area. I changed stand locations maybe six times before I got to where I needed to be. Wow. Now I'm talking, dropping, dropping your set, walking 20, you know, 20 yards and setting up again and doing that until you, until you think you got these deer pegged. I, and that's and that's what it takes. You can't just go, like the. I'm lucky. I share a hunting property with an old fat man, because <laughs> he sets he he he's been sitting in the same tree stand probably since 1979 or whenever they legalized bow hunting in Iowa, <laughs> and it works to my uh. benefit. Um, it pushes all the deer away from me, but you have to be able to, you have to be able to be mobile. And if, if a deer is making a move and he starts, even if it's a pattern for two days, you see him move that, that one day or that one night, you best believe that next night I'm over in that area. I'm over where I saw that buck because if he's coming, if he's coming from there once there, there's a potential he's going to come there for, you know, again, especially, you know, the early to mid, mid October season. Now the rut, it's all bets are off, but you know, that. And have a backup of whatever you need with you, you know, a good hand saw, pull, you know, a pole saw, what it, because I've, I used to not carry a pole saw when I, when I was hunting and, uh, I used to work for a pole saw company and now I always carry a pole saw and watching, uh, watching a buck that is 180 inches and not being able to take a shot because you didn't have, uh, didn't have, a, a your trees trimmed is a gut wrenching experience. I, uh, I can imagine that doesn't sound like fun. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, take a little extra time when you get to your location and just be patient. And it's like, you know, remember what Dan Infault said on, uh, the podcast he was on, he, he likes to get to his location and then stop when he's like 20, 30 yards out and just observe, calm his breath and just then take a couple minutes to gather yourself and then approach. Uh, and I think that, I think that's great advice. Yeah, no, I like that too. I think, uh, the one other thing I would add just based on my experience with it is if you're new to doing this whole run and gun thing, um, and you're out there with your, either your climber or with your, you know, your portable stand and sticks, make sure that you've practiced 
a good bit before you're out there in the woods actually trying to hunt. Because if you're not confident, you know, putting your sticks up, putting your stand up and doing all that quietly and quickly, you're going to, you know, you're going to have some struggles, especially after dark um, or, you know, before daylight in the morning. So I would actually try to practice at night. You know, lots of times when I'm going in there, I'm either putting up a stand before it's daylight or I'm tearing down a stand, you know, after dark uh, in the evening. Lots of times those types of situations happen. And if you're not comfortable doing that, it can be a real challenge. So, you know, I encourage you just to make sure you have experience with it if you're new with it. So. And, you know, th- and everywhere you go, people are going to say the same thing, man, use a safety harness. It's, yes. it's just not, it's not worth it. And, and I've been, I've had some scares in my life, uh, setting up some of these running gun sets or set, I mean, even preseason, you know, it just takes one little slip and I don't care if you're falling eight foot or you're falling 25 foot, you're going to break your neck and then you're never going to hunt again. And, uh, I'm not, I'm not willing to take that risk. Yep. I agree. It is it's not worth it at all. So safety first, safety first. Well, I think that's a, that's a pretty perfect place to wrap up. You think so, Dan? I think so. Cause I think if we go in any further, uh, I'm not going to have my chores done by the time my wife gets home. <laughs> well, we can't have that. <laughs> we can't You're, have that. We cannot have that. Done. <laughs> all right. Well, that said then, you know, to everyone out there listening, Thanks so much for joining us. I hope this was interesting and hopefully, you know, helpful in some different ways. Um, we always would love to hear from you if you have different ideas on on these same topics. So feel free to shoot us a message on Facebook or an email. Um, let us know what you think. If there's different tree stand ideas that you think are worth sharing, you know, we'd love to hear about that. Um, also, you know, if you're new to the show, be sure to head over to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast so you'll get updates when our new shows are released. And if you have been enjoying the show, you know, we'd of course love it if you could leave a rating or review on iTunes as well. You know, it takes just a quick second and it really helps us keep the show on the air and doing what we're doing. So thank you in advance for that. We'd also like to thank our partners who help make the show possible. So big thanks to Sitka Gear, Bushnell Optics, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Carbon Express Arrows, Lacrosse Boots, Big and J Long Range Attractants, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. We really appreciate your support. That said then, be sure to visit wiredtohunt.com slash episode 8. That's the number 8 to view the show notes and any links we might have from today's episode. And if you're new, head over to wiredhunt.com to sign up for our Whitetail Fix newsletter as well, where we send out different updates. And now once a week or once every two weeks, I'll be sending out a summary email to everyone, letting you know what's you know most interesting on the blog as well too. So that's something to look for. And also, be sure to head over to Dan's new blog at ninefingerchronicles.com as well. There's some some good stuff over there already. So I like what you're doing there, Dan. Thanks, man. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so thank you again, everyone out there in Wired Hunt Nation. You guys are the best. We appreciate everything you do and the fact that you're taking time out of your busy day to spend a little time with us. And until next time, have a great week and stay wired to hunt.